Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how you create your own reality. We explore the idea that your life experiences are not random or arbitrary, but rather a direct result of your subconscious beliefs. When the conscious and the subconscious conflict, the subconscious wins, and you'll never get over your past until you realize how you're using it to justify yourself. We dig into the powerful revelation that life only ever changes in the paradigm of action. You must do something differently than what you've done before in order to change. We talk about all this and much more with our guest, Gary John Bishop. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to success podcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed the female and male brains. Are they different? And if so, what are the differences and do they matter? We looked at the science behind all of this and unlocked key insights into how you can improve your health, happiness, and relationships by using a few simple strategies with our guest, Dr. Luann Brizendine. If you want some surprising science that you can use to transform your relationships, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Gary. Please note this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Gary John Bishop. Gary is a personal development expert and is the author of the best-selling book, Unfuck Yourself, Get Out of Your Head and Into Your Life, and the soon-to-be-released Stop Doing That Shit and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. His approach blends a unique in-your-face approach with the high-level training and development practices. Hailing from Glasgow, Scotland, Gary's work has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, Vice, Business Insider, and much more. Gary, welcome to the Science of Success. Great to have to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Almost got my words mixed up there, but yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it happens. It happens. Well, we're very excited to have you on here, Gary. Love your message and your work. And I can't wait to dig into a number of the different themes and ideas that you've written about and talked about. Good. Well, let's get to it. So one of the things that I, I really enjoy about your approach to things is this idea of, and you may not exactly call it this, but this idea of responsibility and that where we are in our lives, fundamentally, we're responsible for the creation of that. Could you, could you begin by unpacking that idea and, and explaining that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. People use the word responsibility a lot, and I don't think they use it responsibly. So it eventually comes down to uh, being to blame for something or something's your fault. And that's really not responsibility in the sense of a human being. So being responsible for something as a human being means like you fully accept it, you fully embrace it, you are aware of it, you know it. And if you take all of those things into consideration and you're still doing the shit that you usually do, then now you're being irresponsible. As human beings, we don't tend to have much sense or, or at least awareness of some of the stuff that we've put together, some of the things we've accepted as beliefs, some of the things that we have concluded. But ultimately, in the living of one's life, you will have to live with those decisions and conclusions, whether you're conscious of making those decisions and conclusions or not. So I, I really feel as if as a human being, it's incumbent upon you to go beyond knowing things about yourself, to go beyond racking up reams of knowledge about yourself and start to make some connections, to start to expand your awareness, and then to live life being fully responsible for that which you've made yourself aware of. The thing that I feel like so many people struggle with is, is that part of acknowledging and accepting the things that they've either consciously or subconsciously brought into their life or created as a part of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, you, your life is a subconscious expression. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you're mostly guided by the automatic. You know, most people can tell you what they do. A lot of people can tell you why they do what they do, but not to the degree that they stop doing it. And so I'm interested in I'm interested in getting in that little bit deeper. Like what what is it that's really fueling me as a human being? You know, that's what I talk about extensively and stop doing that shit. I, and I know these have these kind of like my books tend to have these kind of 
you know, abrasive titles. But there's a lot in it. There's a lot in those in those books. It's not just me telling you to stop doing something, right? I mean, you can just ask your mother; she'll tell you to stop doing a bunch of stuff. So my my approach is definitely understanding yourself in a way that perhaps until this point in your life you might not have done. And and then stop doing that shit. I, I provide you with the, a real pathway to join in some of the dots of your own behaviors that are working against you to reveal something that perhaps you hadn't considered. You bring up another really important idea and expanding that out a little bit was a question that I've always had that I think your your work hits at the heart of, which is this notion that people oftentimes spend time, energy, money attending all kinds of personal development seminars, reading tons of self-help books, et cetera, and yet never really fundamentally change. Why yeah. is that? A couple of reasons. So as I said, there's a massive difference between knowledge and awareness. So I've met some really smart people who are about as aware as a plate of dead fish. They could tell you tons of stuff about awareness, but that hasn't made them aware. So when you're aware of something, when you when you when something goes off in you, when you're enlivened by something, when you when some you get an insight about something that's so compelling that there's no way back from it. You can no longer act the way you've acted. And to me, that's that's a real insight. As human beings, we can tend to become these kind of insight junkies. You know, like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Now, part of that is because when we are reading or listening or watching something, we're, we're, we're doing it at a very, just a very kind of basic level. We're just doing it at a level of agreement and disagreement. And, you know, coming up with the arguments for and against in our head as we're doing it, rather than being in it for what it might illuminate. But I guess that's part of my problem with philosophy in general. It's way too interested in itself rather than its usefulness. Why do we often not really change? Because we're still pretty much addicted to the myth that we've built. Because there's a kind of gravity, a certain kind of certainty in the life you have, even though you might not particularly like the life you have or say you really want to change it or even be doing a lot of stuff that you feel as if would change it. At some level, you must be pretty connected to having it be the same. And that's, that is a big part of what Stop Doing That Shit's about. It really is about once and for all revealing what your resistance to change is grounded in. That phrase, at some level, you must be pretty connected to having things be the same, so powerful. And yet, I think listeners may not fully grasp the importance and the depth behind that. Can you explain that a little bit more and really what that actually means? Yeah. Well, there, there was a, a French guy uh, by the name of Emile Coué. I think that's how you, sell, you, you pronounce his name. There was a, an inflection at the end, so I'm presuming there's an emphasis on the A. But anyway, Emile Coué. He lived in like the 18th century. And he said, he didn't say it this way. He said it in a much more French eloquent way than, but this is the Scottish interpretation you're getting. Well, the conscious and the subconscious conflict, the subconscious wins. So if I've subconsciously, and your subconscious, by the way, isn't some foo-foo, you know, made up thing. It's real. It's, you know, there's, you don't need me to give you evidence of it. Just troll your way through Google. It's, you know, neuroscience agrees. It's real. It's a thing. It's there. It makes up most of what drives you. And when I say most, I mean almost entirely of what drives you. 
but what if you looked at your life from the perspective of your subconscious? What if you looked at your life and said, well, what if all this is supposed to be this way? What does it prove? What does this bring to life for me as a human being? So I'll give you an example. And it's, this is one of the examples I talk about in the book. But, but it took me a number of years to discover that I had at some level or at some time in my life concluded that life is a struggle. And I have, no, I have no sense of doing such a thing. I have no sense of like, oh, yeah, life's a struggle. I just realized that when I looked around me, like everything was a struggle. There was nothing that wasn't a struggle. It was all hard work. And I noticed these other people, how they were interacting with life wasn't like mine. And I also noticed that where life wasn't a struggle, I would make it one. I would find a way to have the struggle come to life. And it was digging and digging and digging at that. I started to see like not only was in my experience of things was life a struggle, but that I was actively engaging myself with things that would make it one and that none of it was an accident. I would look at my self-sabotage and suddenly my self-sabotage became obvious. Well, of course, I, and, and, and this is what kind of I tied into what Kure said. Anytime something that came up that would conflict with the notion that life is a struggle, I would either dismiss it or throw a hand grenade in it. So I'd blow it up. And I, I had no sense of doing such a thing. But if you track my behaviors, it was not only dead on the money, but it was consistent and cyclical. And it was, uh, and, you know, I'm sure your, your listeners can relate to this. Situations where my wife would seemingly be going in the right direction, and then boom, and then going in the right direction, and then boom, and then going in the right direction, and then boom, over and over and over. And my assertion is, and again, again, that's in the book, that's what we're doing as human beings. We're overcoming something, almost getting there, sometimes temporarily getting there, and then bringing the, the conclusion back to life again over and over and over, and then you die. So this idea that your belief that, that life was a struggle was showing up in all kinds of areas of your life. It was, it was, it was cropping up in seemingly unrelated things. And, and you make a really important point, which I want to underscore, which is this notion that this isn't something you were consciously trying to do. It was a subconscious pattern that was manifesting itself. Right. It all started for, for me uh, a number of years ago by actually getting out of bed one morning and I, and I realized, I actually caught myself reminding myself who I was pissed off at. Like, I had to remind myself, like, oh, yeah. And and then when I looked at it really closely, I noticed in the moments before that I wasn't pissed off at them. Like, so, like, they weren't even on my mind. I had to, like, check in with my reality. And you might have, got, you might have listeners right now that are nodding their head going, oh, my gosh, I've done that. So, it, you know, it's not rocket science really to start to understand that every morning I don't I don't wake up into the world. I wake up into a very specific world, a world of my nuances, my biases, my upsets, my my view of things if you like. But but more deeper than that actually is is my experience of being alive. Like there's 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 just what it's like for me to engage with this life. And it's not arbitrary. It's not just some random experience of being alive. It's a very defined one. It's a very, with certain limitations and certain sacred cows and certain, like, it's just very defined. And, you know, the people that I would call my friends are the ones who have a life experience that's closer to mine. 
right? So they would be like, oh, you see it that way? And then you experience it that way? Oh, yeah, I do too. Yeah, we should be friends. And then the people who don't, like you experience it in a totally different way, well, clearly you're just an idiot or you're wrong or something. But, you know, what I'm experiencing as a human being, and I started to, you know, I started to really get, like, every day I I reintroduce the matrix. I just reintroduce it. And then I live it. I live it. And then I reintroduce it and I live it. And so seeing that life as a struggle was for me was like seeing the black cat and the matrix. It was like, oh, shoot, there's the program. Like there's, And it took me a while to come to terms with it. In the matrix, I am both the rebels and the matrix. I'm all of it. I'm the whole thing. And it was really uh, it's suddenly my self-sabotage and the ways that I would undermine myself it just revealed itself like a like a this kind of unfolding series of aha moments and 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 starting to really understand that that there exists for me or within me if you like which is I don't even know if it's within me in a, in a literal sense but there is the presence of a default way of living that until I discovered it it was the only way of living. And when I discovered it and saw it as a default way of living, suddenly I could see all these alternatives. Suddenly I could see all these other ways of being alive and being expressed and having my life be a bit something a little other than overcoming what's there for me to overcome by default. I love the matrix analogy because I think it comes back to the original idea that we were talking about before, this notion of responsibility and the fact that your life experiences are not random or arbitrary. They're defined by an invisible set of rules that you believe to be true, but the reality you're experiencing is not the same reality that other people experience. And I love this notion that if it's the matrix, you're the rebels in the sense that you're trying to change yourself, but the really important thing that you said is that you're also the matrix. You're complicit and explicitly creating this reality that you're experiencing, and you're not even aware of it. I would be willing to wager that most of your listeners or a large percentage of listeners are what I would call have a default way of being called being analytical. Okay. They're kind of drawn to your conversation because it gets to scratch that particular itch. There's nothing wrong with being analytical. In fact, again, most of your listeners, if you look at being analytical as a way of being, you'll find it works very well in your career. However, being analytical is, a, is one of those things is, as a way of being, as a default way of being, it's a little too fascinated with itself. So somebody like somebody might come up with a solution for you and you'll like the solution, but then you'll start to analyze it and then you'll what if it and you'll coulda, shoulda, woulda it until its usefulness is no longer applicable, which means you now need to analyze to find another answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. All right, good. So, so, but if you like, if you start to see like, wow, like that's what I do by default. Actually, that's part of my default wiring because analysis needs problems, right? It's, it's a very internal state. It can also be a very worrisome state as a way of being, right? And again, I'm, I'm coming at this from an ontological perspective. That is looking at human being from the perspective of their ways of being, right? as Heidegger would have called it or Sartre would have called it that, uh, from the perspective of your ways of being. Being responsible means I've done the work to 
reveal those to myself in such a way that I, that they make other things available and that I can actually see the ways in which these default ways of being intrude in the quality of my life or in my ability to go beyond what I think my potential is. And I'm responsible for them in such a way that they that their impact on me and my life diminishes greatly. So I'm 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 fascinated by a human being's ability to go beyond who they have come to know themselves as. Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, would have said, freedom for a human being is can be found in the actions that one takes. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but can be found in the actions that one takes when confronted by one's default self. So that is when I notice my default self and yet I act independently of that. Heidegger says that was and is freedom for a human being. That's really powerful. And the the focus that you have and you talk. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact about him taking action as something that's so important and many ways shapes the structure and the ideas around our show. We try to always figure out how can we create concrete action steps and ways for the listeners to implement things. So I really love to see that as a core component of what your your message and, and the fact that it's not just about becoming aware and then accepting the the default network. You actually have to take action. You actually have to do something to to change it. Yeah. You got to drive a bus through it, as I like to say, right? You got to drive a bus through it. You got it. One of my pet peeves right now is social media with people, you know, posting pictures and then declaring they've read their 19th book of the year or whatever it is. You know, this is my 32nd book. And I say, this is fine, but what are you changing? What's what have you taken on? What have you realized? What have you uncovered? What have you transformed? What have you transcended? Like what, how has the reading of that single book shifted your life, right? And I'm a, I'm a great believer in, you know, you could you could basically read any book and find something in there that you could use to change your life, right? And I really mean that. Like you could read a book about Greek architecture and find something in there that actually inspires you to change your life or gives you the kind of insight, if you think about it, to change your life. And change in life, by the way, does not come from insights. And I love insights, by the way. I love it. I love a good old-fashioned Scottish insight. However, life only ever changes, only, only, ever, ever changes in the paradigm of action. So that is that you now do differently than you did before. The illusion is that somehow we feel as if or we think that we have to feel differently in order to do differently. That is not true, right? That's nonsense, right? That's why the whole thing about positivity kind of grinds my gears a little. Some of the most positive things I've ever done in my life, I did them with a negative mindset. I don't I didn't have to tell myself that I was awesome to do awesome things. I found that my I got to be an extraordinary human being and engaging with extraordinary things as an ordinary man. So that is with all the nuances and biases of every other ordinary man. And there's nothing extraordinary about me at all. 
in the slightest of it, just an average kind of guy who engages with extraordinary things and gets challenged by them. There's no like special genetic, you know, kind of dispossession for extraordinary going on over here. I'm a very ordinary human being with a pretty unspectacular life. Um, what makes a human being extraordinary is the kind of things they engage themselves with and the actions they take, right? Because life only ever shifts. And by the way, you don't even have to believe what I'm saying. Try it out. Try it out for yourself, right? Like, you'll see that your life changes only in the paradigm of action. And if you're not if you're not making physical changes, more of this, less of that, less of that, more of this, your life won't change. You might feel a bit better, but it'll be the same nonsense. Reminds me of that classic quote, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. And I feel like so many people fall into the trap of waiting to feel good or waiting to feel that they're ready to start taking action. But as you're saying, it's really almost the opposite. You need to take action first and then the changes start to actually accumulate. Right. So I would I would put almost all my success in, in life in the last dozen years or so into throwing myself into things that I had no idea how I was going to do them, which was a complete shift from how I'd done it before. I always needed to plan it out and make sure I knew what I was doing and da 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 And if I wasn't feeling it, then I'm not doing it. And I don't feel confident enough. And I don't feel as if I know enough, which if you're analytical, yeah, that's like a hamster on the wheel right there, right? Because you'll never know enough. And yet, and again, if you just use like reality, right? Some Some of the greatest breakthroughs of science and engineering were made by accident. So they were made by people actually working on something else, right? And then like, oh, what's that? Which tells you that in the paradigm of action, when you're acting on something, right? And I don't mean just sitting in your chair thinking about it, because thinking isn't an action. I mean, you're actually doing, right? You're producing. That's where discoveries are made. That's where you actually, you 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 make progress. It's in the doing. It is, it's not like I'm anti-thinking about doing. I just think it's way overrated. This also dovetails a little bit into one of the core themes that you you talk and write about as well, which underscores a lot of these feelings of not being ready or not taking action, which is the need for certainty. Yeah, we're addicted to certainty and it gets gets worse as you get older. So when you're really young, you know, I've got three kids. I have a 14-year-old, seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And the four-year-old has no concern for certainty. Like he just doesn't, doesn't care. He's he's out there, he's living, he's doing it. The 14-year-old is getting more and more concerned for things being a certain way. And that just gets more and more and more as you get older. And I I talk about this in my first book. I say, look, if you've had any kind of success in your life, you'll notice that you did it in a condition of uncertainty, right? So any any kind of big success, you feel as if you produced when you went to college, moved to a new town, you know, applied for a new job, started the business, whatever you ask somebody out, whatever your thing is, like, you know, that was a big thing for me. You'll see you did it in a condition of uncertainty. That is, you you went into the unknown and you worked your way through it. Now, you'll also notice that when you have had some kind of success in a certain area, that what then follows is trying to preserve it or maintain it. Right? So you've now given up on the very strategy that got you there. Now you're in some other strategy. Like, how do I preserve my certainty? Because as it is... By and large, as human beings, we just hate 
hate, hate, hate uncertainty, yet we're drawn to it. So, like, I want things to be some level. I want things to be the same, but I want this new thing. And so, and 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 you know, my view is that that's the kind of crossroads where human beings exist. They exist. And this kind of crossroads between having things be the same yet desiring the new. And if you want new things to happen in your life, you need to be someone who starts to get comfortable with it. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And if, if anything's going to give you any comfort, that would be the knowledge that even if it doesn't turn out, you're going to be fine. Right? You'll, you'll, your survival will kick in. You'll work your way through it. You'll be fine. And so I, my, I really encourage people to embrace uncertainty in life, to really get that if you really ought to have something great happen, then uncertainty is going to be a big part of it. And, you know, you're either going to resist that and stick to what you know, or you're going to reach for something way beyond your potential, or at least the potential that you think you have. I couldn't agree more. And we've had many, many episodes on the show where we talk about the importance of embracing uncertainty. What are some of the strategies that you found that are particularly helpful exercises or things to begin to step into the uncertain? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work on myself, Matt. You know, I've like really dug into the depths, right? I've been into the dirt where people just don't go. And I've really like uncovered an awful lot of what was driving this kind of persona of mine, right? Like what was, why it was all so important. So that was a big part of it was this kind of uncovering. But a really simple strategy that I still use, right? And I use this all the time is this whole notion of personal promises. It, promises aren't something we really use in our lives, right? We don't. We, we say things like, I'm going to try, I want to, I'm going to. But nobody's really like sticking a flag in the ground saying, like, I promise to deliver this by da, 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 you know, a date or something. So when I wrote uh, my first book, when I wrote Unfuck Yourself, I noticed that I was having a physiological reaction to the idea of writing a book. Like I was getting butterflies in my stomach. And I noticed like I, when it came down to it, I, I just didn't want to write it. Now, you know, I could get into, oh, let's uncover why you don't want to write it and all that stuff. And I, and I did to some degree or another. But, I, but rather what I did was I, I stuck a flag in the ground and said, okay, I'm going to give myself nine months to write this book and I'm going to deliver on it. And so every day... I would get up, I would go to the laptop, and I would notice there was a some kind of mood I was in, some kind of outlook that I had, some kind of feeling that I had that was in contrast to what I said I would do. And so what I what I started to live was the life of my promises. So I started to live, I started to do what I said I would do, and given less and less and less attention to how I felt about what I was doing. So I would say my success as a writer is completely a function of delivering on the promises that I made and everywhere along the way, handling myself, right? And handling my resignation and handling my cynicism and handling my my upsets and handling my circumstances to deliver on what I said I would do. And having what I said I would do reach the kind of importance that it deserves, right? Which it deserves an importance way greater than how I might feel about any of that. Because my promises exist outside of me. They don't exist in me or they don't, I don't, I don't experience my promises. So my promises are like a straight line. They're from here to there. And all the 
junk in between here and there is how I feel about it. And, you know, like whether my circumstances fit with it. And da, 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 da. So I, I make bold promises in my life. I don't, I'm not careful about my promises, by the way. I'm bold about them. I get out there. I make promises that I'm not even sure if I can keep it or not. And I turn myself inside out to deliver on them. I'm not somebody, you don't talk me out of my promises. I, I, I make them, I deliver on them. I make them, I deliver on them. I make them, I deliver on them. And, you know, all the junk that happens in a life has little or no impact on the power of the promises that I make to myself and in my life and my profession and my relationships, because the promises that I make to myself are getting bigger and bolder and more compelling. And they call me out. They call me to be a greater self. For someone who's not as hardcore as you, and honestly, I, I think you and I are similar in the sense that I'm also very hardcore. I try to push myself really hard. What are some of the ways that people can step into taking more action? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So this whole world of personal promises, I had to start small, right? So if you start with a promise, like I'll give you a simple one that people just wrestle with for some reason. But anyway, if you set your alarm for 6 a.m., promise yourself you're going to get up the first ring. So the first one goes off, get up, right? And that's the promise you'd make to yourself. And that promise is greater than how you feel when you wake up. So you might feel like, oh, I hardly did I sleep. Oh, I've got a sore head. Oh, it's cold. You got to set all that aside and hold yourself to that promise. So it's all like simple things, like little promises. Now, human beings, and this is the thing that just never ceases to amaze me. The more you keep promises, the more emboldened you'll get. You'll actually start to experience yourself as a bigger human being. So it's no surprise that one might relate to oneself as small or incapable or somehow, you know, not quite up to the task. Because your life is filled with a trail of broken promises, things you would tell yourself that you're going to do it. And then for some reason or another, you, you are able to talk yourself out of it. And then that just kind of gets thrown in the backpack like another little disappointment. So you got to build that back up again. you got to combat. you got to really start to bring forth the presence of your personal power. And you do it in little ways. So it might be. So one of the things that I took on a while back was uh, intermittent fasting, okay? So I, I'd, I'd read a bit about it and understood it. And, you know, I love pizza and fast food and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't fancy the whole idea of living the rest of my life on a diet. Right? I just I didn't fancy, like, you know, eating kale all the way to the grave. So I, I looked for something that I thought could work for me. And I came across this intermittent fasting, which is you eat during an eight-hour window and you don't eat for 16 hours. And you do that every day. So for me, it looks like I don't eat till noon. And then the last thing I can eat is eight at night. And at the beginning, it was so challenging. I mean, because, you know, physiologically, my body is like, have a snack, you know, or every time you open the refrigerator, you know, like, eat that sandwich. And it was just on and on and on. And all I did was just these little victories with like, no, I said I wouldn't eat, so I'm not eating. All right, I said I wouldn't eat this time, so I'm not eating. And it was really, really challenging. It was really like the first month was like, oh, my God, I don't think I can do this. And then I noticed like it was getting easier and easier and easier and easier. And I was starting to get bolder and bolder with the promises. Like I really felt as if like my my personal power was coming to life. Literally what I was experiencing was a victory over what I a victory for what I said over how I felt. And so I would say to people, start like lay out some small, even just one small victory that's a victory for what you said over how you feel. 
and start to pepper your life with those little victories. Like that's a victory for how I, what I said over how I feel. That's a victory for what I said over how I feel. And you'll actually start to see and you'll gather this body of evidence for that your life could be a series of promises fulfilled. That's a great way to break it down, starting with small, easily definable, easily executable actions and promises. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill slowly builds more and more and more momentum. That that also makes me think of a tangentially related idea or theme that you you talk about, which is this notion that we're not defined by our feelings or thoughts, our beliefs, but we're only fundamentally defined, our identities are really truly defined by our actions. Right. Now, I, I wanted people to get the, the sense, because look, we all have an inner critic. We all have some internal dialogue, which basically it exists like some kind of conundrum. It seems like no matter what you do, there it is, you know, and whatever yours is. And and mostly in our lives, we're trying to organize ourselves around it, right? So if your internal dialogue is something, is, is fundamentally from something like, I'm not smart enough, that'll be guiding you in ways that you can't even imagine. That'll, that you will literally, and it'll seem like there's legitimate reasons, right? Like, oh, I'm not doing it because of this, 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 and this. But if you peel all that back, you'll see what's running the whole thing is I'm not smart enough. And I'm giving you an example here. So now you're actually being defined by something called I'm not smart enough. So your life is getting defined by, so there's jobs you won't apply for, you won't write that book, you're not going to move to that town. Why? Because at some level, you don't think you're up to it. You'll have a lot of, again, on the surface, compelling reasons. They all are being put there to kind of bring some logic to the whole thing. But ultimately, you're being, you are being pushed in a certain direction by something that's going on with you below the surface. And I say, well, first, if you can recognize that, that's interesting. But secondly, what if you could produce results that go beyond that, right? Like, so for me, you know, like writing a book, was something that goes beyond what's going on with me subconsciously, right? I mean, someone with my internal wiring wouldn't write a book. They wouldn't do it. So the only way I am an author by virtue of the actions that I took, period. How I felt about all of that played little or no part in it. And if it's only actions, like I talked about earlier, actions are the paradigm of change. That's where your life changes in the actions that you take and the actions that you don't take, right? Then it brings a lot, it takes all the attention away from working on like, I don't know, getting more confidence or whatever the thing is that I think might be going on with me internally that I need to fix. If I actually focus on, okay, but let's say this thing that I want to do, what if I just did it? Then, then you're actually now you're living your life as a reflection of your action. I mean, look, you're you're currently living your life as a reflection of your actions. I mean, the life you have is given by what you did and didn't do and that which you continue to do and not do. So if you, again, if you want to bring real and significant change to the direction of the trajectory of your life, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, think differently. Yeah, I don't think you have to. 
I think you need to do differently than you've done before. I think today you need to do something that you didn't do yesterday, something that's more in line with the future you're out to have. And I think you increasingly need to pepper your life with those kinds of actions because when it comes down to it, you are what you do rather than you are how you feel about what you do. That's a really powerful way to phrase it. What would you say to somebody who's listening that's thinking to themselves, you're, you're just trying to bury, you know, bury your feelings or, or push your feelings aside, and that's not necessarily a healthy way to think about taking action? Well, I wouldn't agree with burying your feelings, right? Um, I think we're at a point in society where we've made our feelings. There was once upon a time in history where your feelings were completely discounted. And people had the experience of being suppressed. I think we're in danger of going the whole other way now, where it's all about your feelings, right? I'm not any different than anybody else. I experience loss, disappointment. I experience all those things. I'm not a robot. And at some point, whether you're experiencing any of those things, loss or disappointment or, you know, apathy or, you know, like you don't experience yourself as somebody who has confidence, that actually is the only thing that you have any say in. You don't, you, don't have, you don't have a say in what the world is going to do, right? The world's just going to do what it's going to do. You have, the, you have a massive say in your experience of this world. And nobody's going to come and save you in that regard, right? So I, I, I will acknowledge how I feel. If I'm in some kind of negative state, I'll acknowledge it. I don't just crush it and press it down. I don't do any of that. I acknowledge it. I, I give it the space that it deserves. And if you're giving it more space than it deserves, it will have the final say in how your life goes. So I'm not out to have people like, suppress their emotions. I'm saying to people, you need to put them in perspective. You need to put them in the right place. If you're feeling sad or you're feeling disappointed, those are appropriate to being a human being. They're very appropriate to the experience of being a human being, but they're not the kind of things that I would use to define my life. I allow, you know, as I say to people, you're, you're more like a conduit as opposed to a location. Experiences come and go. Yeah, feelings come and go. They're legitimate. They're real. They're part of the, the notion of what it is to be a human being. But you should be aware and very responsible for the significance that you put on those feelings. And you should be very responsible for the impact that they have in your life overall, because no one can be responsible for that other than you. No one can have a say in that other than you. And, you know, ultimately, you know, like I said, no one's coming to save you. If you really want to do great things and go beyond your own set of personal constraints, that will require you to act with those negative feelings, sometimes there, sometimes not there. Earlier, you talked about one of the core strategies for overcoming self-sabotage being around the importance of creating alternatives for yourself, alternative ways of belief, alternative ways of understanding. How do we go about starting to create some of those alternatives? One of the things that I do and do this regularly is I, this is an example that I used in Stop Doing That Shit in the latest book. It was said that when Michelangelo um, created David, it was from a giant block of Carrera Marble. It was said that in his mind, David was already done. All he was doing was revealing David. So every step, like he was just taking another piece away that wasn't David. And I invite people to kind of take their lives on that way, like to start to 
start with the ending. Start with, this is done. All I'm doing is revealing it. And I look at my life and the day-to-day actions. Is what I'm doing today revealing a future or perpetuating the past? Is what I'm doing revealing the future or perpetuating the past? And in very short order, you'll see that most of your life is about perpetuating the past. So if I'm out to have a future of having written five books, right, every day I'm taking actions that are either consistent with five books or something else. And so it's not a it's not a hard comparison to make. It's pretty easy to see you're taking your life in a direction that's not consistent with what you yourself have created. And again, that's where the importance of those promises start to grow and become more significant. How does forgiveness play into overcoming some of these limiting beliefs that contribute so much to self-sabotage? Yeah. If you are somebody who struggles to forgive, you better learn fast. Because whatever you don't forgive lives on with you. That includes forgiving yourself and forgiving others. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, right? Because it feels like often for us as human beings, if I don't forgive somebody, it sometime, it somehow evens up whatever they did or didn't do. And it doesn't. It perpetuates what they did or didn't do. And you're the one that's left with a resentment. So... You know, you can't have no forgiveness without resentment. I don't care how many times you convince yourself that you can. That's bullshit. You can't. And by the way, if anybody's listening to this right now and they they can experience like their emotional state starting to rise, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's what you've given yourself. You've given yourself the gift of anger and resentment and upset. Sometimes it's like you're you're despondent or you're like you're you've turned yourself into a victim or something. So as a human being, I feel as if it's incumbent upon on each of us to forgive as quickly as possible. Why? Because the future is far more important than your unwillingness to forgive and to hang on to the past. Such a powerful way to phrase that. I, I love that phrasing. The future is more important than your unwillingness to forgive. Correct. Correct. And, and look, I never said forgiveness is easy, but one of the things that I'm out to do with people is actually show them how to forgive. I mean, nobody really shows you how to do that. How do you forgive another, right? Or how do I forgive myself? The, the one with yourself is a little easier. You don't forgive yourself because it allows you to stay in whatever you've done, it allows you to keep that as some kind of excuse not to move ahead. So, you know, when people say, oh yeah, I can forgive other people, but I can't forgive myself. I know, but you're an asshole. You got to cut that shit out. And I'll tell you why you got to cut that, cut that shit out because you've, it allows you to justify this crappy life that you currently have. You'll never, ever get over your past until you deal with how you've used your past to justify the current life you have. That's one of my favorite quotes from, from your work. Tell me more. How do you unpack that a little bit more for me? Yeah. Yeah. You've built a life around your past. I mean, it doesn't seem like you have. Yeah. You've become, some people have become uh, harsher because of the past. Some people have become less vulnerable because of the, in, in their mind, because of the past. But, you know, if you read 
anything like Alan Watts, for instance, he'll tell you there is no cause and effect from the past to the present. It's not real. It's a made-up thing by human beings. You're not really caused by the past. It's just something you've hung on to. And, and by the way, if, you, if any of your listeners have never listened to Alan Watts or read anything about Alan Watts, yeah, he'll, he'll shake your reality to its very core. So, you know, like some people say, well, you know, I'm in this relationship with this person, but we never had love when I was a kid. So I'm struggling to have love in this relationship. That's an example of using the past to justify that you're just unwilling to share or be vulnerable with this person. You're just not willing to deal with whatever you need to deal with personally to love another. Therefore, you perpetuate the myth of your own past. And that's just, a, I mean, the, the, the examples are massive, right? Like I had a, I had a crappy drive and he worked this morning, so therefore the rest of the day screwed, right? Or, oh, why are you in a bad mood? Oh, it's just I'm having a tough time right now. Well, not right now you're not. I mean, you might have done yesterday or this morning or this week or this month, but right now, that's using the past to justify yourself right now. So it's it's you didn't always have a say in some of the stuff that happened in your life. You don't always have a say in some of that. But you you have all the say in how that's going to impact your life moving forward. And part of shaking yourself free from the grip of that is starting to realize that you are, in fact, very consciously using your past to justify your present. And, and if you can uncover one, two, 10, 50 examples of that, you start to see that you've pretty much turned yourself into a small human being. This is a bit of an aside, but I'm, I'm a tremendous Alan Watts fan. He's one of my all-time favorite thinkers and writers and and really one of the most insightful people. And it's amazing because his, he, he died so many years ago. It was like 30, 40 years ago. And yet his work is still so powerful and so resonant. Yeah, well, one of the things I talk about this, by the way, in my latest book, Watts talked about causality. And the illusion for human beings is that causality travels from the past to the present and the future like a line, right? And it's always flowing in one direction. So that is things are the way they are because of the way things have been, right? So, and it's, and, and we live with that. And I would call that no more than a superstition now. Like having been dwelling in that notion for probably a good five or six years now, causality is by and large, a superstition. It's it's voodoo, right? And if you give it real thought, like, you know, sorry, one might say, well, the hammer, the head of the hammer drives the nail, cause and effect. Okay, well, what about the arm? Okay, what about the brain? What about the belief that the person has? What about, there's so many other aspects, right? But if you give up the idea that something happens in the specifics of a causality, like, like people talk about, you know, I am the way I am because of the way my father was. No, you are the way you are because of the items that you cherry picked about your father that now explain the way you are. But there were a lot of other aspects about your father that you wrote off or other aspects of your childhood that you just dismissed. So then your whole notion of, I mean, why can't I be caused by, if, 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 if causality travels from the past to the present, why can't I be caused by some of the great days of my childhood? Why can't that be the cause of why I am? Why can't I be filled with joy because of that great day I spent playing soccer when I was nine? Why does it have to be that time when my father fought my mom? So I love dis- dispelling the notion of 
causality like I am here by as a, as a cause of something, like something caused me to be this way. And I actually talk about this notion of reverse causality that is being caused by something yet to come, which is a whole other creation, right? Like, well, what if I was influenced by, caused by, inspired by that which has not happened yet? You know, that's one of my favorite ideas from Alan Watts, this notion of the hammer hitting the nail. And, and if you expand out anything, you're at this exact moment, your entire life, any instance of anything that's ever happened, it's completely inseparable from everything. There's no way to trace it back to anything except for the entire collective history of, of the of the whole cosmos. All right, that's awesome. And then, so therefore, like your petty complaints a little more than just petty complaints. <laughs> that's right. So, so for listeners who want, we've covered a lot of really interesting topics today. For listeners who want to concretely start somewhere with an action step with a way to begin implementing this, what would be one piece of homework that's an action item that you would give to them to begin this journey? Oh, this is all, this is, that's a great question. This is one people can get to right away. Look at in your life, look at whatever item you can choose, but something you've been tolerating, something you've been putting up with, something you've been putting off, something you've been ignoring or pretending about. It could be anything. It could be like your closet in your bedroom. It could be your car. It could be those bills, those taxes. Pick an item, one item that you've been tolerating and go handle it today. And I don't mean like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it on Thursday and next, you know, handle it today. Take that item, step step up on your feet and go handle that item. And you'll actually, and again, regardless of how you feel about that item, whether you've been dreading it or this is, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm confused, I don't care. Get in there and get it handled. And again, this is one of those things that has this cumulative effect. You'll realize that after doing it, like you're inspired to do another and inspired to do another. So if you want to make real change in your life, it begins by cleaning up some of the mess you've made. So there's no point just going to the great stuff. Start cleaning up some mess. And the more mess you clean up, you'll realize the great stuff, the things that you thought you could do, start to get clearer and clearer. They come more into your field of vision and you're more compelled to act on those things. Pick something simple, pick something you've been tolerating and handle it. Love it. That's a, that's a great piece of homework for the listeners. And for listeners who want to find more of your work, your books, et cetera, online, what is the best place for them to do that? You can find me on my website, garyjohnbishop.com. You can find me on Twitter at Gary John Bishop, on Instagram at Gary John Bishop. You can find me on Facebook. One of the things that I'm really committed is that people get lots of free stuff, you know. So I'm always putting stuff up online that will inspire you or cause you to think, like really like have you engage with a, with an idea. And then, you know, obviously on my website, you can buy any of my books. I've got a couple of courses on there. Courses are cheap, right? I don't do this, you know, 99 bucks a month stuff. You can actually buy one of my courses. It lasts for about three and a half hours. You got all the materials with it to do the course. I'll cost you maybe, depends if sometimes the sales on 75 bucks, 99 bucks for the course. And you have the course for its entirety and you can do it as many times as you like. So I'm committed that people get to interact with me and participate with my work at a kind of cost that doesn't, you know, require them to get a second job or something. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, some really insightful uh, ideas and thoughts and examples, and a great piece of action for the listeners to take after they listen to this episode. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. 
I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.